Hey, congrats, Jamal and Cassidy. Congratulations. Congratulations. Oh, man. Oh, goodness. That's so exciting. All right. Um, thank you also, um, Robert, for that great communion message. That was a cool insight. I've never peeped that in. Where'd he, where'd he go? Oh, there he goes. Uh, I never I never saw that, the Azuzo thing. And um, I don't know if y'all noticed that he went from, like, seasons to goats to, like, Jesus to fallen angels to substitutional atonement. Like, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. But, um, yeah, that, so that was a tale of two goats. This can be maybe a tale of two kings. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the story of Adonijah trying to become king. And uh, that's, that's going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1 if you want to turn there. So, 1 Kings chapter 1. So this comes at the end of David's 40-year reign. He's reigned for 40 years. He's about 70 years old, and he's not very active anymore. His health is starting to decline. He's not very aware of what's going on in his kingdom. But you got to think about the mileage that David had at this point, right? He spent his childhood. He was a shepherd. <clears throat> he kills the most famous giant of all time, right, at like probably 17 years old. He wins hundreds of battles. He survives hundreds of battles. He sees hundreds of battles. Could you imagine that? Uh, he spends a decade on the run, and then he spends four decades ruling probably the most important kingdom in the world, the kingdom that God is going to use to bless the entire world, right? So he's seen a lot by 70 years old, and at this time, he has a lot of children. He has a bunch of children. I'm going to name a few. So from Ahinoham, he had Amnon. From Abigail, he had Daniel. From Makkah, he had Absalom and Tamar. From Hagith, he had Adonijah, and then from Bathsheba, he had Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. And he also had about 13 other kids by concubines. So he got busy, right? Um, and so this was in direct this was in direct opposition to God's command. It wasn't like God was like, hey, go sleep with all these concubines. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. God specifically said, do not take many wives, especially if you're king. So what does that have to do with the space between us? Just to start off, right? Uh, so sometimes the things that we can do in search of unity actually start causing the complete opposite. Yeah. Right. So David's intent was probably let me have a big, happy family. Right. That'll bring unity. Let me just have so many kids. We're going to all live together in this big palace. It's going to be great. But when we do these things outside of God's instruction, they don't bring peace, right? Um, yeah, how many things can we do with the motivation of unity, but it really just drives us apart because we do it in an ungodly way? Uh, I, I had some family drama recently, and it's, it's really interesting because all, everyone in my family, deep down, they want to get along. Right. Everyone deep down, they want to get along with dad. They want to get along with grandma. They want to get along with brother or sister. But we just don't. 
because we're we're acting out of we're not doing it in a godly way. We're not going about it in a godly way. Have you ever like I don't know experience where maybe a relative, right? They want you around, but then it'll come off like sour, right? They'll say, "Oh, well, you never call, or you you never reach out, you never do this for me." That's that comes from the intent of man. I really want to be close to you, but we're not expressing it in the right way, right? Or in even relationships, it can come out through manipulation, right? Or blackmail people, guilt trip people, use fear and intimidation just to keep someone close. But in the end, that doesn't that doesn't create any closeness, right? If we want to be closer, we simply just need to follow what the God of peace says, the God of shalom says. And so David, he doesn't really follow that. And he has 20 kids with about 20 women. And uh, these kids raise a bunch of chaos. So in 1 Kings 1, I'm going to read through 1 Kings 1. I'm going to chop it into three chunks because it's pretty long. Um, And I'm going to be quoting a lot of Proverbs in this. And then in the end, I'm going to kind of go into um, a more theological perspective of it. So I will just start reading. First Kings 1, verse 5. Oh, and I'm reading in the NLT just because it's easier on the ears. All right. So about that time, verse 5, about that time, David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I will make myself king. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. Adonijah took Joab, son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, into his confidence, and they agreed to help him become king. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and David's personal bodyguard refused to support Adonijah. Adonijah went to the stone of Zoheleth near the spring of Enrogel, where he sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves. He invited all his brothers, the sons of King David, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the king's bodyguard, or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and asked her, Haven't you heard that Haggith's son, Adonijah, has made himself king, and our Lord David doesn't even know about it? If you want to save your own life and the life of your son Solomon, follow my advice. Go at once to King David and say to him, My Lord the king, didn't you make a vow and say to me, Your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you are still talking with him, I will come and confirm everything you said. Okay, so a little summary of that. Adonijah declares himself king. He goes and he, he makes a big sacrifice in Enrogel, in the south side of the city. And he has this little banquet, and he has a very specific guest list. And then the prophet Nathan hears about it, and he goes to Bathsheba and says, hey, we're in trouble. We're going to do something about this, right? But right off the bat, in verse 5, we go back, says, David's son Adonijah began boasting. He began boasting. And in the NIV translation, it says he began to put himself forward, which I think is a really good definition of boasting. Boasting is putting yourself forward. Um, Now, the most painful boasting, I would say, is the boasting that has a little bit of truth to it. And he did have a little bit of truth to his boasting. He was, after his brother Absalom died, he was the oldest son. So he technically could have been, you know, hey, I'm the oldest. I should be king. 
But in him doing that, he was assuming that he would be king and he was overstepping his father's right to choose his own successor, right? So he's saying, I'm going to make the decision. I'm the oldest kid. I'm going to make the decision. And so when we boast and we put ourselves forward, what we're simultaneously doing is putting everyone back. That's what boasting does. And so what he was doing, he was putting himself forward and he was putting his father behind him. He's putting the kingdom behind him. He's putting his brother behind him. In James chapter 4, 16, it says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Do we typically think that boasting is evil? I know I, I really, you could ask them all. I suck at this. I boast all the time. <laughs> He's shaking his head like I didn't boast this week. Um, but boasting, it's, it's evil. And we don't, I don't think we elevate it up to that point, how evil boasting can be. Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. You know, boasting, if it was, if I could make an analogy, boasting is kind of like if you were to go and make yourself a gold medal, like an Olympic gold medal, and just wear it around, right? It's like you, you're wearing a medal, but you're not, you didn't do any work to get it. It's just all from your mouth. So this week, I heard this interview by George Foreman. He's a former heavyweight champion. He's an absolute stud um, back in the day. But now he, we might know him as for the grills. Yeah, the grill guy. He's made like $200 million on his grills. But uh, so he was on the I Am Athlete podcast this week and they were they went to his house for this interview and the whole interview, they were like they were like stammering and stuff because they were so blown away. But what they were blown away about was his family, because when they went to his house, they saw all his 10, 12 kids that he has. They saw a bunch of his grandkids and they, they were like, man, your family is so beautiful and they're all here and they're all together. And this is what we dream for. Right. This is what we dream of when we're old. And one thing George Foreman said, he said, when you walk through my house, the last thing you're going to find is a trophy, a championship belt. Those things are put away because it's all about the next generation, my children and their children. I don't want them intimidated or seeing something that's going to, I just want them to know it's about them. I display their trophies now, their medals. It's all about them. George, I was just a guy at the right place at the right time with the right punch. So George, he has his whole family with him, right? And he decides, hey, I'm not going to boast. I've, I've done all my stuff. I'm going to boast in other people, right? And so what kind of person would you rather be around? Would you rather be around a George Foreman? Or would you rather be around a Adonijah type guy who's like, no, nah, I'm going to be king. I'm king putting medals on himself, okay? Now, let's continue. If we look at this feast, right? I've been calling this like a ghetto brunch that we had. Um, <laughs> is, I mean, because this isn't how you inaugurate a king, right? He's, he just, he says, I'm going to sacrifice a bunch of bulls and sheep and stuff, and then I'm going to invite who I want to invite, and I'm going to just call myself king. That's not how you inaugurate a king, Right? So he sacrifices all these bulls and stuff so it'll look like it's all God, right? Look, this is for God. Look, look, look. But it's it's not. It's completely the opposite. And then also, let's talk about who he invites. He invites Joab and Abiathar, right? So Joab was someone who had worked with his father for years. They were actually first cousins. And he was the general of his army. And if you read the story of David, 
you're gonna see so many times when Joab and David are like, and they're kind of like, they kind of bump heads a little bit. You can kind of sense the tension. But Joab, they were close. But the thing is, he he just picked somebody who was indifferent to his father David, right? And so Adonijah, he's able to wiggle into that, just, ah, yeah, Father David, he's cool. He wiggles into there, and he gets him on his side. And that is called dissension. It's called dissension, and it's called gossip. So, some proverbs about gossip. It says, without wood, a fire goes out. And without gossip, a quarrel dies down. How do you get Joab on your side? Gossip. Proverbs 16.28 even shows it a little better. A perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. Joab and David were once close friends. How do they separate? Adonijah wiggling in there saying, hey, come on. I should be king. Come on. This guy, he's, he's not even doing anything, right? And gossip is so easy, right? How easy is gossip? It's as easy as, like, just making eye contact with someone and making, like, uh, you know, that can be gossip. And that alone can separate us when we're talking about the space between us. How easy it is to gossip and separate each other. Two weeks ago, J.D. preached a great sermon on, you know, how hard it is to build a bridge, but also how hard, how easy is it to destroy a bridge? How easy is it to create a river? When it comes to the separation in our church and in our families, it is going to take work and it's going to take godly principles to build bridges, to eliminate that space between us. And so here is a godly principle that will help us build bridges. Fight gossip. (laughs) Fight slander with every ounce of your being. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. We really have to work really hard at this. The Bible says the tongue is the hardest thing to control. So we have to work really, really hard at this. If you're going to talk about someone in their absence, only speak well of them. Resolve in your mind to never speak a negative word about others in their absence. Now, is that unreasonable for me to say? Is it to never speak a negative word in someone's absence? Is that unreasonable? It's not. It's hard. It's so hard. It's very hard. Oh, but I I just got to get this off my chest. Just let me tell you. No. I just got to vent. I just got to vent about this person. No, no. Get it off your chest in prayer. We vent to God. Vent in prayer. Right? And so I'm not I'm not talking about like abuse or severe mistreatment. Right. If someone is abusing you, talk about it. Right. But ninety nine point nine percent of the time when we are venting and saying negative things about other people in their absence, it is not from severe abuse. Right. It's from little petty things. It's about little annoyances. Right. Little misconveniences. Someone had a bad day. You caught them at the wrong time. Now we're talking about them behind their back. Right. That's 99.9% of the time when we're gossiping. It's from that. And we can overlook those. As grown-ups, we can overlook those things. And we can pray about those things instead of gossip. Because here's another thing about praying. Is that prayer works. (laughs) That's another thing about praying about it. It'll work. And God will probably help you resolve that issue with that person. Um, I have a story about Ariel uh, that happened a few weeks ago. 
people. So a few weeks ago, uh, or a few months ago, um, so she had this thing, this, this woman that Ariel really looks up to and really likes, really loves, uh, was kind of like cold with her. Don't worry, there's no one in here. Um, and she loves and likes all y'all. But um, so she was kind of cold with Ariel and, and Ariel was like, hey, what's up? And the lady was like, and um, it really hurt Ariel's feelings. And so she was kind of sad and she was kind of mad about it. But she decided to pray about it. And then about a week later, Sterling came up to her and said, I'm sorry. Sterling just turned uh, red. But uh, Sterling came up to her and said, hey, Ariel, um, I don't know if you know this, but a few weeks ago, you did something and it, it just made me feel kind of, I don't know. And I just wanted to talk to you about it. I didn't want to harbor any bitterness. I just want to talk to you about it. And Ariel, she was like, yes, okay, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Because she realized that the same way that she had made Sterling feel was the same way that this woman had made her feel, right? And so instead of being like, oh, you know, like angry, she was like, oh, thank you so much for telling me that I hurt your feelings. (laughs) So that was one way that the prayer got answered, right? She was able to forgive this lady in her heart and move on. And then the next week, the lady texted her and said, oh, my goodness, Ariel, I just realized... I was so rude to you two weeks ago. I'm so sorry. Just out of nowhere, the lady texted Ariel. So, prayer works, right? Now imagine if Ariel didn't pray. <laughs> and she just went out and gossiped and talked about it and spread rumors about this lady, spread negativity about this lady. And then other people got angry. Other people formed an opinion about this lady, right? Prayer works. So the people that you're struggling to get close to, people who you just can't seem to, you know, are we praying about it? Or are we just talking about it? Adonijah and Joab, they bonded over just some small disagreements with King David, right? And they then they pulled this dumb plot of, you know, ghetto brunch and try to become king. Um, but what's interesting is Adonijah, he doesn't have to conspire with David's worst enemies. He just has to conspire with someone who's like, yeah, with David. And that's how he gets him on his side. David's top general. He gets him on his side with just, a, eh, you know, he's all right. So Adonijah, his plot, it starts with pride and entitlement, which moves into boasting and gossip, which continues into dissensions and factions. And eventually, now he's trying to crown himself king. Right. And so that little bit of pride and that little bit of gossip turned into a split kingdom. So I want to remind us of the verse at the very beginning. If we go back to verse six. Because it was just a little bit of pride and a little bit, little bit of gossip. Verse 6 says, His father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, Why are you doing that? Right? That's the importance. Nip it in the butt. I know I definitely got nipped in the butt a lot. So. All right, so let's continue in verse 15. Okay. And this is Bathsheba and Nathan's intervention. So verse 15, 1 Kings 1, verse 15. So Bathsheba went into the king's bedroom. He was very old now, and Abishag was taking care of him. Bathsheba bowed down before the king. What can I do for you? He asked her. She replied, my lord, you made a vow before the Lord your God when you said to me, your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne. But instead, Adonijah has made himself king. And my lord, the king does not even know about it. He sacrificed many cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and he's invited all the king's sons to attend the celebration. 
He also invited Abiath the priest and Joab, the commander of the army. But he did not invite your servant Solomon. And now, my lord the king, all Israel is waiting for you to announce who will become king after you. If you do not act, my son Solomon and I will be treated like criminals as soon as my lord the king has died. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. The king's officials told him, Nathan the prophet is here to see you. Nathan went in and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Nathan asked, my lord the king, have you decided that Adonijah will be the next king and then he'll sit on your throne? Today he sacrificed many cattle, fattened calves, and sheep, and he's invited all the king's sons to attend the celebration. He also invited the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. They're feasting and drinking with him and shouting, Long live King Adonijah! But he didn't invite me or Zadok the priest or Benaiah or your servant Solomon. Has my lord the king really done this without letting any of his officials know who should be the next king? So it is it's important to note what Bathsheba and Nathan are working towards in this moment, right? Not only are their lives in danger, pretty big motivation, but they're working towards the king's wishes. They're working towards God's plan. And I think it's really, really interesting that Nathan, a guy who disapproved of David in his life, who contested him to his face and said, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, right? Who confronted him, who rebukes him, that guy is the one who's sticking with him when he's down and out at the very end of his life. That's the guy who comes and says, hey, your kingdom's in danger. Your son is in danger. That's the guy who's loyal. Also, on the other hand, David, at this at this age, he doesn't treat Nathan like an enemy because Nathan rebuked him back in the day, right? He still keeps Nathan close to him. So here's a proverb. You know where I'm going? Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. So I would say the incorrect handling of correction and rebuke on both sides, the correct or and the correct deed, is definitely one of the biggest causes of separation in our church. Uh, it's just what it is, right? It's definitely a big cause of separation. But this proverb says, if someone comes to you, tells you something you're doing wrong, the way that you respond reveals what kind of person you are. Right? Especially if they come with tact and respect. I'm going to talk about, they should come with tact and respect. They're going to rebuke you. And that is how Nathan did come to So if you hate someone, because you sinned or you did something stupid and they rebuke you or they correct you according to the scripture are you wise? no, you are not wise you are a mocker so the Hebrew word for mocker is loops uh, loops is actually the verb so it's someone who loopses and loops means to scorn to talk arrogantly or to boast so a scorner, a mocker an arrogant boaster right? Scorn means, I had to look this up, an engineer, not a writer. It says, scorning is the feeling or belief that someone or something is worthless or despicable. Contempt. And Ariel said that's kind of like Cinderella's stepmother. She was scornful. Ariel, I don't know the Cinderella. I haven't watched it lately. But (laughs) y'all... (laughs) 
But yeah, so mocker. <clears throat> if you hate somebody because you sinned, you messed up, and they corrected you, according to the scripture, you are the mocker, right? Now, on the other hand, if someone rebukes you because you sinned, you did something stupid, and you're able to hear it, you're able to take it in, not get defensive, you're able to apply the wisdom and become wiser still than you are wise. If someone, <laughs> here's a funny example, if someone mansplains to you, y'all know what mansplaining is? I know all the women do. Um, so last week, or a couple weeks ago, I was at the gym and this dude mansplained to me how to use the leg press machine. He came up to me. I've been using leg presses since I was 15 years old. And he comes up to me. He's like, actually, you want to use the, the lever. The lever moves the chair, and then you're going to do. And in my head, I was like, there's no way this guy just unprovoked walked up to me and started explaining to me how this leg. <laughs> so, but. So to be honest, it, it bothered me and it's, it still bothers me that he did. And I, I told Ariel, I was like, when he told me that, I was like, I'm going to follow this guy around and I'm going to do every workout he does, but better. And then I saw him, he's stronger than me, so I can do it. But uh, So I was in this situation, right, where someone was correcting me and my heart just got, <clears throat> my pride came out, my mocker came out, right? My arrogant boaster came out. I was like, oh, this I'm a stud. He shouldn't be telling me this, right? But you know what? 90% of what he told me, I already knew. But 10%, I didn't know. He, sh he did show me something that I didn't notice about the machine. So I said, oh, thanks, man. Okay, cool. And I just walked away. I was boiling on the inside, but I walked away. I was like, dang it. He taught me something, even though he mansplained it to me, right? So... This proverb, it's hard. It's really hard, but instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. We want to be wise people. We don't want to be mockers. We don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be boasters. We don't want to end up stupid. Right? And so this, this is not a salvation issue. Right? We can blow off as many people as we want. We believe in Jesus Christ. We repent. We're baptized. We can show up to the gates of heaven stupid as can be. Right? Because we... <laughs> We can blow off all the people. We're just going to show up to the gates real dumb, right? Um, but this principle, it's not even just like a biblical thing. Like it, it relates to everything. Like it, it related to me in fitness. It can relate to us in our careers, right? It can relate to us in relationships. It can relate to us in so many aspects, right? So David, he knew this principle, and that's why he kept Nathan around. Proverbs 27, verse 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from, I wish my name wasn't Nathan for this summer, but wounds from Nathan can be trusted. It, my name's George. Wounds from, wounds from Nathan the prophet can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So if a friend comes to you, a friend, if a friend comes to you with something that you're doing wrong, that should actually elevate them as a friend. You shouldn't cut that person off. Keep that person around because they're probably going to be with you to the very end. They really are interested in your well-being. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. All right, let's continue. Section three. Verse 28. So, I'll put this picture up. 
So then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king, and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. When they, when they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you, and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. And I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen! May the Lord, the God of my lord the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my lord the king, so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon mount King David's mill, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah and, the, and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asked, What's the meaning of all the noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar the priest, arrived. Adonijah said, Come in. A worthy man like you must be bringing good news. <laughs> Not at all, Jonathan answered. <laughs> Our Lord... <laughs> Not at all. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Carathites, and the Pelathites. And they have put him on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. From there they have gone up cheering, and the city resounds with it. That's the noise you hear. Moreover, Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. Also, the officials have come to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours, and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. At this, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. So Solomon's first ruling as king is to decide whether his brother lives or dies. He has to enact judgment on his own brother, right? This didn't have to happen. His first ruling as king could have been to appoint his brother over ten cities or something. To appoint his brother to sit right next to him on the king, on the on the throne, right? But instead, because of his brother's arrogance, his brother's boasting, his brother's dissension, he has to he has to do this, right? The space between us. So here is oh, actually this map. Yes, I don't know if you can see it, but. Here's the Temple Mount area. This is the city of David where it 
his favorite was. And Gihon uh, or Solomon was crying king in Rogal where the little bronze was at. And in between this, it's like a valley. You can see it in 3D. It's like a, a valley. So you can imagine these guys eating a lamp shop. And then they start feeling the ground shake up here and parties up here. And they're like, what is going on? And they look up the valley and they just hear stuff. And uh, it's the worst case scenario. It's what it's going on. But here's where we leave kind of the, the wisdom stuff, the Proverbs and stuff, and we get into some theology, right? So King David, the father, King David, hears that there's a false king out there trying to anoint himself. So he says, okay, it's time to anoint the true king. And he does it properly. He rides a mule into city, into the city. He's anointed with oil by prophets and priests. Trumpets blow, people shout, and people rejoice. Okay? Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. So in the same way, there's a false king on this earth. Right? He's a false king, the devil, who exalts himself. And he offers his own banquet, separate from the king, on the other side of the city. And he's full of pride. He's full of lies. He's full of strife. He comes with this facade of godliness. Right? But really, in the end, it's all evil. And he'll try to worm into our lives, worm into our families, worm into our churches, and separate us. And he'll promise you some short-term joy. Right? Hey, come on, eat with me today. Just eat with me today. The king, he's over there. He's not listening to you. But here's the good news. God has made this Jesus, whom we crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Right? And he's made it, he's made him Messiah in a proper way. Right? Jesus entered the city on a mule. Jesus was crucified, rose again, defeated death. He sits at the right hand of God. And one day, trumpets will sound. Right? Announcing his rule. So we must stay loyal to the king's true wishes. You see, the only person who can crown the next king is the actual king. Right? And the only one who can anoint the son is the father. And it's interesting, this whole story, Solomon doesn't speak a word. The whole, the whole story. And he doesn't have to speak a word. His father speaks the word. Nathan speaks the word. Bathsheba speaks the word. In the same way, it's on the, yeah. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Jesus didn't have to crown himself. Jesus was crowned. Right? Jesus didn't have to take the throne like Adonijah. He took the throne like Solomon. Proverbs 25. Is this on here? Yeah, this is like the perfect scripture for this whole sermon. I don't even have to preach. We can just read this. But it says, Proverbs 25, 6, says, Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence, and do not claim a place among his great men. It's better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. Right? So we all we all want to rule, right? We all want to be kings and queens. We all want to, you know, wish we were in charge. And I think that's put in us because God put us on earth to rule, right? In Genesis, it says, rule over the earth. So that is inside of us, but we kind of distort it. And here's the thing. We are to rule, but we're supposed to rule under a ruler. And that ruler is King Jesus. And the way that Jesus wants us to rule is shown in Luke 22. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. So I'll make this statement about that. If we have any position of leadership in our life and we claim to be Christians, then the number one trait that people should describe us with is servant. Yeah. The number one, if we have any leadership in life, the number one attribute should be servant. They are like a servant. A kingdom doesn't stay together when there's a bunch of kings, but a kingdom will stay together when there's a bunch of servants. A church doesn't stay together. A family doesn't stay together when there's a bunch of kings and queens. But it stays together when there's a bunch of servants. Have y'all ever seen an ant? No. Have y'all ever seen a queen ant? I ain't never seen a queen ant. And I've seen a lot of ants in my life. Trust me. I've seen a lot of ants in my life. But I've never seen a queen ant, but I've seen so many ant mounds, right? And why is that? Because all the ants, they they know I have to be a servant. That's it. There's not a bunch of queen and king ants going around trying to create their... There's just one queen and all the ants are servants. And in the kingdom of God, it should be like that. There's one king and we are all servants. We're servants. When we try to become kings and make ourselves kings, all we do is cause disunity, disruption, and discord. So I want to kind of close out with this, with Psalm chapter 2. I don't have a slide for it, so we're going to have to turn to it yourself. But Psalm 2, I think, is just a perfect, it's literally about this story, actually. So Psalm 2, it's about Solomon and King David, and it's also about God the Father and King Jesus in the same, it's just cool how prophecy works like that. So Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains. Let's throw off their shackles. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge. The way to eliminate the space between us, number one way is to remember that there is one king and it's not us. That king is Jesus. So the reason why we should not boast like Adonijah is because we are not King Jesus. The reason why we should not gossip or slander is because we all belong to King Jesus. The reason why we should not split off and make different groups and cliques and factions and stuff is because there's only one kingdom and it belongs to King Jesus, not us. And the reason why we should take advice, instruction, and rebuke is because that is the way of King Jesus. Right? So if we learn anything from the story of Adonijah, we can learn about the danger of a self-appointed king and also the power of a divinely appointed king. Thank you.